0: Hebrews chapter 13 So where we're going to be headed this morning. Stop some of that noise. Turned me off. Some of you are hoping to turn me off, but I actually did it. All right, Hebrews chapter 13. As you guys make your way to the 13th chapter of Hebrews where, uh, God willing, we will actually complete Uh, our study through the book today. Let me just remind you one last time that the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And so as we uh, complete our study, what we see is from the very beginning, the writer wanted to make abundantly clear that Jesus is better than everything these Hebrews that are receiving this letter could ask, think, hope, or imagine. And so he began at the very beginning of the book to show that Jesus is better than Uh, prophets and better than priests and better than angels he is better than all the trappings of their uh, Jewish faith and so what we find is that he is better than even the tabernacle itself that the tabernacle was meant to be the, the very embodiment, the place where the Spirit of God would dwell in the camp amongst the people. And here's Jesus, what John chapter 1, verse 14 says, is that the Word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled among us, that He came to actually dwell, to actually be uh, in the midst of the camp, to live out life with us. And so here's Jesus, the, the tabernacle, He is uh, presented as the tabernacle Himself, but not only is he the tabernacle, he is also the perfect sacrifice. That he is better than any sacrifice that the Old Testament could offer up. He's better than any uh, ram or goat or lamb that could be offered because his sacrifice was for all of eternity. That it was a once and for all an eternal sacrifice as opposed to everything in the Old Testament which would mean they would have to sacrifice uh, over and over again, repeatedly. We studied through that the Hebrew word was a kofar. It was a temporary covering and the people that would offer these things would know that next year I'm going to have to go back again. It wasn't good enough. And so the reality is Jesus is a better sacrifice because it was good enough. Good enough for all of eternity. And so he's sharing this with this group of people and the reason he's doing this is because they're considering walking away. This is their thought. That it would be uh, perhaps easier, better to just walk away. And so you might wonder, like, why would they walk away from the faith? Why would they walk away from realizing that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting thousands of years for? And here's a few reasons. Uh, One, remember, they were being heavily persecuted. They were being attacked, berated, uh, cold shoulder being turned by their family, their friends, the people they'd worked with because of their newfound belief in Jesus as the Christ. And so their thought was, maybe it'd be easier to just walk away. Maybe it'd be easier to not be picked on uh, not set apart, not stand out. We could just go with the flow. I mean, yes, they were, they were picked on as Hebrews, but not nearly as much as what they had been as uh, converted Christians. And so the thought was it'd be easier to just not stand out anymore. And so he wants to provide encouragement to them. The second reason that they were considering turning back was uh, to religion into law it is something that is hard for us to grasp, but the reality is the law is always appealing to the flesh. That the law and abiding by the law to to uh, to form my life to where it can adhere to the law is appealing to my flesh because there's this idea that I can do it on my own. Am I having a really bad humming sound that I'm also hearing? Okay, so just making sure it's not me, it's not you. You don't have to adjust your hearing aid. Don't adjust the bell tone. Jerry's going to help me out. So now we're just gonna. I'm just going to sing uh, rap songs from the 1980s for you. This is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. But let me take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. All right, so I'll just go through the whole thing. Uh, no, nobody's into that. Hey, I already sound better. Thank you. The wrapping work. Thank you, Will Smith and Jerry Thomason for the help. All right, so the second reason they were considering walking away was because Uh, the religion and law is actually appealing to our flesh. And that might sound contradictory, but when I say that, what I'm getting at is that the law indicates that there's a chance I might be able to do it on my own that if I work hard enough, if I put enough effort in, that I would be able to actually stand before the true and living God. And God, knowing this in our selfish hearts, He said, all right, if you want to live by the law, if you want to do it on your own, I'll give you a few commandments. In fact, 613 in the law of Moses. And if you can just stick to 613 commands, by the power of your flesh, you can stand before a holy God. But the reality that we know as well as these Hebrews knew is, Uh, we can't even keep the top 10 list. We don't stand a chance of being able to actually uh, craft our lives to where it could be formed to the law of Moses. And so the law was perfect at what God set it out to do, and that was prove that we need a Savior. It was perfect in pointing uh, out to us that we can't do it on our own. So as we try, as we try to manipulate our lives and try to somehow be good enough for God to be accepted by God, what we find is we fall woefully short every single time, which is why in chapter 12, verse 24, we read that to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling, it speaks better things than that of Abel. The blood of Abel spoke of judgment and justice, where the blood of Jesus speaks of mercy and grace. And we need a mediator. We need one to stand between us and the true and living God. This is Jesus Christ the righteous, the new covenant, His promise. Now finally, the thing that was tripping up these Hebrews is that they could see the temple. That the temple was something they could physically see. The sacrificial system was something they could see it taking place. The incense, when they would be there in the courtyard, they could see the prayers going up. And so they would go, you know what? We can understand this because we can see it. But the thing is, um, faith is something that we cannot see, which is always a struggle. They put their faith, their hope, in the temple because they could see the temple. But what Jesus wanted to encourage them to do, what the writer wanted to emphasize is, we need to put our faith in things that are not visible because those are the things of God. And yet we can see the fruit of the things that are not visible. We can see the fruit of our faith playing out in people's lives. But what's, uh, what's just as impactful to that is, he wanted to encourage them not to put their faith in a temple because what you guys know is historically, In just six years after this letter is written, the thing that they put their faith in, the temple that they love so much, it was completely obliterated. It was wiped out. Not one stone left upon another. Exactly what the Christ said was going to happen. And so he is writing this to them to say, put your faith in the one who does not fail, who will not fail. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we read, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It is impossible to be at peace with God without faith. And what is he asking for us? What is he asking out of us? Simply to believe that he is and to believe that he is a rewarder to those who diligently seek him. Believing that he is. He is God. He is set upon his throne and It goes deeper than that, believing that he's a rewarder. He loves me enough that he's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of me as I I seek after him. Now, as we arrived in chapter 12, the writer knows, look, as you're reading through this and you think about this life of faith, and then you're experiencing all the persecution of your life, it's important to be reminded that we are going through a marathon, not a sprint. This thing is not a flat-out foot race sprint. It is a race of endurance. This is what the life of faith looks like. As we live out our lives, we know that all too well, that it is daily, it is a grind, and it is endurance. And yet we're not left here to do it on our own. In fact, at the end of chapter 12 last week, we read, our God is a consuming fire. And when we first read that, we think, man, that doesn't sound that encouraging. But what I reminded you of is that as God is a consuming fire, he is consumed with coming alongside you. He is consumed with helping you. He is consumed with burning up all those things that are not good for you. He is consumed with helping you because he loves you, which is a perfect tie-in into chapter 13 where we read in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. So as he's writing to these people, these Hebrews, he's saying, look, you've, you've been loving towards one another. Continue to love each other. Continue to care for one another, even as you're having struggles and there's persecution and you've got questions. Continue to allow the brotherly love that started to flow from you. What Jesus would say in John chapter 13, verse 35 is this, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is how Christians are supposed to be to one another, that love should just flow naturally. I just... Love you. We might not have everything imaginable in common, but I, I love you as a brother, as a sister, as a believer. Years ago, there was a man standing along the Golden Gate Bridge, and he stepped up uh, on the ledge and he was considering uh, killing himself. He was going to jump down to the waters below and take his own life. And as he was pondering this, another gentleman was walking along the bridge that day, and he walked up to him and he, he, he saw what was taking place and he said, Hey, brother, let me just ask you a question. Are you a Christian? And so the man stepped down from the ledge and he wiped his, the tears from his eyes. And then he said, yes. And, and the man that asked said, oh, that's fantastic, so am I. Can I ask you, are you a, a Catholic or a Protestant? He said, well, I'm a Protestant. Oh, that's amazing, me too. Well, what denomination do you belong to? And the man said, well, I'm a, I'm a Baptist. wow. So am I. That's amazing. So the man said, Well, are you a Northern Baptist or a Southern Baptist? He said, Well, I'm a, I'm a Northern Baptist. Oh, this is amazing. I'm a Northern Baptist as well. Now, are you a Northern a conservative Baptist or a Northern liberal Baptist? Well, I'm a Northern conservative Baptist call Ripley. They won't believe it. So am I. This is amazing. Are you a northern conservative uh, Baptist from the Great Lakes region or a northern conservative Baptist from the western region? He said, well, I'm a northern conservative Baptist from the western region. And he looked at him and he said, die, you heretic. And he shoved him off the bridge. That's how we are so many times, isn't it? When someone's theological stance, or their understanding of Scripture doesn't line up just perfectly and exactly with ours. Um, when we get ourselves consumed with denominations and what you do or do not believe and the way you do or don't believe it, we completely miss that Jesus was always for way more things than he was ever against. He was for us loving each other like brothers and sisters. And when we have a disagreement or a misunderstanding to sit down and actually look at the text, <laughs> What is it we're disagreeing over? What is it we don't see the same way? And maybe we'll agree to not see things eye to eye, but we can love each other. Now, how should love play out practically in our lives? We're going to see that over these next several verses. Verse 2 says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. And so the first thing to note about love is that it is hospitable that love is willing to uh, entertain uh, angels as well as people that uh, are not angels. And if uh, my kids come over to your house, I'm more worried about them being little devils, not being angels. So, you know, uh, this is encouragement here to me that we might be entertaining uh, angels. But the key to it for us, who already there's some of you that have the gift of hospitality, you're like, that is no big deal. I can let that thing fly. But there are others that immediately when I talk about entertaining people and having them in your home, you're rolling through the Rolodex of all the things that aren't right. Maybe my husband left the underwear on the floor. Oh no, I gotta get home and pick things up really quickly. And so it becomes a major concern, a point of, of heartburn. But here's the key. It's not how well our house is picked up. It's actually, am I willing to give someone else access into my life? Am I willing to welcome them in and give them access to my space? And as we do that, as we share a meal together, I've shared with you before that that sharing a meal or eating together, there's something that happens. There's a reason Jesus was always eating with people. It's because I digest the same thing that you digest, and we actually share. Sometimes we share heartburn, you know. But it's a shared experience that we get the opportunity to have with one another. And So love looks like hospitality, welcoming people in. And the same thing goes for the church that when the church becomes not hospitable, people don't feel welcome. So I want to encourage you guys to continue to make people feel as welcome as possible. Because the truth is, I can jack up all kinds of things in a message. But if we're loving, and we're caring, and we're kind, they're probably not going to remember most of what I say anyway. (laughs) They're going to go home and not have a clue unless they go back and watch it. But they're going to know how we made them feel. And so hospitality is key to loving on people that come into our circle. Verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are ministered, those who are mistreated, excuse me, since you yourselves are in the body also. And so the progression here goes from loving on the saints, the brothers, to loving on strangers to then loving on prisoners. And while there were people that were physically in jail that they were called to love on, What I want to encourage you in is that uh, there are also people that you know all around you that are in a prison. You just can't see the bars. You can't see what they're trapped in. You can't see what they're dealing with. But as you involve them, as you include them as a part of your life, the prison walls begin to break down and then you can share with them because most of you have been in prison too. You've been freed from something. There's something. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's Relationships have been broken that you've seen mended back together. And as you share with someone, you can have empathy for them in that spot because you know what it was like to be in the body, to be a prisoner as well. The other thing I want to note about verse 3 is that we are called to remember that we are enchained as if chained with them. You know what being chained to someone means? You are in proximity. You're not chained from halfway around the world, you're chained next to them. You can be In community with them, it's allowing them to be close to you, which means getting involved, which means sometimes it's messy. Scripture tells us that where there's no oxen, the stall is clean. What what that means is no work is getting done when you've got a clean stall. So there are times where you have to get in where there's ox poop. You might get a little bit on your shoes, but that's what it looks like to be involved in someone's life. And, And work gets done when that happens. The other thing to note is when you're chained next to someone, when they're sharing with you what is closest to them, is not um, this thing right here. It's these two things. God gave us two of these and one of these for a reason. It's been suggested uh, that we should use them in proportion to one another. Two to one. Do way more listening than you do speaking. And I think that helps because often we're concerned. If I get involved, if I'm sharing with someone, I don't know if I have the right words to say, And what I want to encourage you is often people don't need you to share the right words. They just need you to listen. They just need you to be a listening ear that is empathetic, that is caring, and that just listens to what they have to say. That's what love looks like for those who are suffering. Now, verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And so the next way we see love play out is love clings to a spouse. Now, this seems like an odd place to throw in marriage, including uh, fornication and defilement. But here's the thing. Uh, likely, there were doctrines floating all around the church that contradicted God's idea of marriage. Not that we've ever heard any of those kind of things before, right? But but this is the point, that marriage was being questioned, that perhaps marriage wasn't necessary at all, that that It's best for us to just uh, operate life alone, that there's no need to be married. If you're in ministry, marriage is just going to slow you down. A wife, kids are just going to slow you down. So don't get married is what one camp would say. The other camp would say, the ones that tended to be more uh, Greek and Roman, would say, what's the point of marriage? Just go out and enjoy yourselves. These bodies, it's all going to go away anyway, so just have a good time. Let it rip, tater chip. And so these were the two uh, contradictory ideas that were now affecting the church. And what uh, the writer of the Hebrews wants to make clear is that marriage is, throughout Scripture, always one of the most clear pictures we have between the relationship of Jesus and his bride. It is a picture of how he loves us and cares for us. And so what Satan wants to do, because if you discredit the messenger, you can discredit the message, is he wants to disrupt and attack God's picture of his love the church. This is why marriage is constantly under attack and so uh, what Satan also wants to do is continue to uh, attack the word sex right there I said it in the message now we can all be uncomfortable but here's the deal he wants us to either treat sex like it's something completely taboo that should never be talked about by the way just so you know uh, God isn't opposed to sex he created it and the truth is if not for sex none of you are going to be here right now So it's not a bad thing, right? But it's meant to be enjoyed in the construct of a marriage. This is God's idea of what it should look like in a life. So Satan wants to either make it so taboo we don't talk about it, or he wants to devalue it to a point that it no longer has any importance whatsoever and who cares who you sleep with? That's the idea. And what the writer is trying to communicate here is in a loving marriage relationship, uh, it will look like true love. It will be a picture of Christ in the church. But for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge is what he says. And what happens is anytime that relationship is at all affected or defiled, there are always consequences. Oftentimes the consequences look like uh, the little ones all around us. They didn't have anything to do with much of what we allowed to take place in our lives, and yet they're the ones most affected by it. And so the encouragement here is to live in this marriage union without defilement. Now, he goes on to verse 5 and he says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So verse 6, We may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so, following up this whole command to be satisfied with what you have in your own marriage, he transitions now to let your conduct be without covetousness. Love brings about satisfaction. Mick Jagger was looking for satisfaction. He couldn't find no satisfaction, but here it is right here in Scripture. It's found in the loving relationship we have with the Lord Jesus. To covet means to want something that someone else has. To want something that is not ours. And the danger zone behind being covetous is what you're really saying is if God is the provider of all things, uh, God, I'm not satisfied with what you provided for me. It's not good enough. It's like getting your kids a Christmas gift on Christmas day and they open it up and they go, yeah, not for me. That's not good enough for me. How would that make you feel? The Lord feels similarly to that. And so the, the encouragement here is for us to trust him to trust that he will do for us what we need, that he will provide. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 says that godliness with contentment is great gain. To be godly, to be content with what the Lord has given us, that actually makes us wealthy. That makes us rich beyond all imagination because I can trust him that he's going to only give me good things and he's going to provide for me every time I need some kind of provision. He's going to meet my needs. And the encouragement here is that he will never leave you nor forsake you. For you English majors, if you read the Greek, um, that is a double negative. And what it means is that he will never, ever, no, not, never leave you or forsake you. He is re emphasizing the fact that he will not leave, he will not forsake, he will continually be by our side. As David was pondering this in Psalm 37, here's what David would write, verse 25, I have been young and now I'm old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. I've been young, I've been old, I've never seen in my life the righteous uh, forsaken. I've never seen one of his the righteous descendants begging for bread. Over and over again as parents we worry about what am I going to leave my kids? What is their inheritance going to look like? What am I going to pass on to them? What David says is that as we are more and more righteous, we actually pass on to them the bread of life. That's the encouragement here. That's the greatest inheritance anyone could ever receive. And so it's a matter of do I trust him or not? Now, all that sounds fantastic. How in the world do I get there? Verse 7 as we continue. Remember those who rule over you. You have, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Love is seen displayed in submission. And as we submit, and that's a difficult word for us to grasp a hold on as Americans. We don't like to submit to anybody. We don't want to submit to authority. But as we submit to the will of God, what we find is His will is always better in my life. So the question is, Will I submit? Will I accept his rewards for me? Will I trust him? If you were reading along with us in the Bible study together plan, this last week we read out of Genesis chapter 32. And I shared a little bit with this, with the folks uh, that were at Wednesday prayer night. But what I've always heard this passage is Jacob wrestled with God a certain way. uh, But a little bit of backstory. Jacob and his brother Esau, you remember they were twin boys, but Esau was supposed to be the older, but Jacob tricked him. He was the heel catcher. And so he took his blessing. He, he deceived him out of his blessing and out of his birthright. And so Esau, he decided, if you ever come back here, I'm going to kill you. That's how well their relationship went. So Jacob ran away. He spent almost 20 years away from his family, and then the Lord called him back. Time for you to go back to your home, back to the place of your father. And as he made his way back there, he knew he was going to have a run-in with his brother Esau. And he was terrified, well, how this is going to go, well, how this is going to transpire. So as he laid his head down that night, he had a dream. And the Lord came to him in a vision, and he began to wrestle with God. He wrestled, and he wrestled all through the evening with God as this day was in front of him and what it's going to look like. And as he was wrestling with God and it was getting ready to be morning, the Lord actually touched his hip and it dislocated his hip. And so now he's got a a dislocated hip, but he's refusing to let go of God. And what he says is, would you please bless me? I won't let you go unless you bless me. And the Lord says to him, what is your name? And and he responds, Jacob, which is heel catcher. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and men and have prevailed. No longer shall you be called heel catcher, but your name from this point forward shall be ruled by God, governed by God. And so Jacob wakes up from the dream and now he's, he is now Israel. He is now ruled by God. God's will being impressed upon his life. And he is rewarded tremendously for it. But he's got a limp. As we read that story, I've heard it taught over and over again. And this is why we've got to cling to God. We've got to hold on while the Lord blesses us. But what I was struck by this week is, I believe the Lord intended to bless Jacob all along. But the struggle was Jacob just wanted to wrestle with God's will. He wanted to fight and battle and, and slug it out with the Lord to the point to where God had to give him a limp. And there are many times where this is my relationship with the Lord. I'm struggling with Him. I'm battling it out. And, and I come away limping. He blesses me, but He was going to bless me in the first place. And so I want to encourage you as you consider submitting your life to the Lord, allowing Him to rule over you, um, Don't you don't have to wrestle with Him. It can be as simple as putting your hands in the air and saying, Lord, I submit. I give my life over to yours. I want to model my life after Jesus who, when he was faced with the cross in Gethsemane, he he wasn't too interested in the outcome necessarily, the process of getting there. He's like, ah, the pain, the suffering, all the sins of all the world being placed on me, if there's any way to let this cup pass. But he said, nevertheless, not what I will, but thy will be done. Lord, your will in my life, let it happen. And so that being a pattern for us to submit to him, knowing he's got what is perfect in mind for each and every one of us. And as you do that, as you submit to his will, you will find you'll be an encouragement to others, including those closest to you. When they see you giving your will up and going, Lord, I trust you in this spot, you will be a tremendous encouragement to your friends, to your family, to the people you work with. Now, what makes all this possible is in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the source of love. He is the place where all love is rooted and grounded and I can trust him in this because he is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He doesn't fail. The writer of this book started in chapter 1 verse 12 telling us he is the same and he is the same forever for all of eternity. He now arrives in the 13th chapter and he says Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. For me, personally, I struggle with trusting myself because I change. I change my mind. I change what direction I should go. I flip-flop all over the place. But Jesus is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. As we accept that and we let that go into our life and permeate us, what I put up here was that love flows among saints, shows itself to strangers, cares about the suffering, clings to spouses, brings satisfaction and is clearly seen in submission. But all this is based on King Jesus. All of it is based on His sameness. Now, verse 9, as we continue. Do not be carried away about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. As Jesus was drawing his last breath there on the cross, he did not say, to be continued. He said, it is finished. The work is complete. And so any uh, desire to add my own works to it, it is a strange doctrine. It is a work of the flesh. It has no value. Jesus plus anything equals Nothing is what we studied when we went through the book of Galatians. And so this is what the writer is saying. These are strange doctrines, and every one of these strange doctrines, these new twists, these extra things that are added in by any other group that wants to add them in, they're all missing one common thread, grace. They're all missing grace. And they miss out on it every time. And as a result, it becomes all about my work and how much I can do, and and it's completely without fruit at some point. It will be joyless when it is not including grace. Verse 10, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought to the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. So a question would be brought about by these Hebrews, where are we supposed to worship? Where can we sacrifice There's no altar. There's no temple for us. And so what he says is that we have an altar and we have a tabernacle. He is uh, outside the camp. Verse 12, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Who is outside the camp? It is Jesus. Now what in the world is he talking about here? Leviticus chapter 14, Leviticus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 29. All three of these give examples of sacrifices that happened outside the camp. For those of you that love Leviticus, you might know this by heart. For the rest of you, I'll give you the quick 30,000-foot overview. Leviticus chapter 14 deals with leprosy, that condition that broke people down from the outside in. Literally, they would rot and fall apart. Throughout the Old Testament, leprosy is always a picture of sin. It's what sin does to us from the inside out. And so as a person was cleansed of their leper's condition, the sacrifice was taken and burnt, wholly consecrated on the outside of the camp. Leviticus chapter 16, we see this uh, day of atonement. Yom Kippur is what it's known as by the Hebrews. This was, you might remember, the one day a year the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and he could sprinkle the blood of sacrifice on, on the mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies, the propitiation, the payment that turned away wrath for the people. But after he had gotten done sprinkling the blood of sacrifice, he would go back outside the camp, and then he would lay his head upon another animal, a goat, and he would proclaim all the sins of the entire nation and his own on the goat, and then give it a good smack on the hiney, and away it would go through the wilderness. And they would put people stationed throughout the wilderness to say, it's still going, it's still going. This is what was known as the scapegoat. All the sins of the people being ran off away outside the camp as far as the eye could see, never to be remembered again. Finally, Exodus chapter 29. Here we see Aaron and the high priests. They were getting ready to be commissioned into a priestly service to be able to go and do the work of God amongst the people. And yet as they were being cleansed, as they were being consecrated, they were told to take these portions of the offering, take them, you got it, outside the camp to be completely burnt up as they were being commissioned into being high priests. Okay, what does that have to do with me this morning? First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. You, as a believer in Christ, have been called to be a royal priesthood, his own special people, to be set apart to minister to those people in the highways and the byways, those that you come into contact with, to share with them how he brought you out of the darkness into the marvelous light, you are called to be a priest. And as a result of being a priest, he has burnt up your sins outside the camp. He has placed your sins on the head of the scapegoat and ran them off as far as the east is from the west. He has taken your leprous, diseased, filled condition that was rotting you from the inside out, and he has burned it up at the outside of the camp. Jesus the Christ was crucified outside the camp outside the city walls of Jerusalem. There's a a picture of it up on the screen. It's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. It was a place where they would uh, mine out huge rocks, perhaps even the rocks, the stones used in the temple itself. And as a result of the mining, it looks like the face of a skull, but it was positioned directly outside of the gate of the city where the Romans would crucify people here so anyone coming into town would know what it looked like to go against Rome. They would see people hanging on the cross and go, man, I don't want to mess with Rome. But what I love about this is these Romans, these pagans, had no idea they were fulfilling prophecy. They were fulfilling the very word of God as Jesus was meant to be crucified outside the camp to cure us of our sin condition, to be our sin offering completely consecrated, completely given for your and my behalf. Verse 13, as we continue, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. What Jesus would say is take up your cross and follow me. Go outside the camp, leave rules and tradition and, and formalized religion behind. Instead of being concerned with all the things you can see and touch and taste, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.7 is that we walk by faith, not by sight. We are called to walk by faith, to put our trust in him, to go outside the camp, to take up our cross. How can we have this kind of confidence? Well, verse 14 says, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. What Abraham said in chapter 11 was that he was looking forward to a a place built not with human hands, but built by God. He was looking for a heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, that all that this life had to offer, it's not good enough. But what the Lord has to offer are heavenly places. We're positioned with him at the right hand of the Father, seated in those heavenly places. Beautiful promise. Verse 15, therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So what in the world does God want from me? What is he looking for from me? Here's the thing. He's not looking for your works. He's looking for your worship. Thankfulness. Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. Praise. The praise that comes off our lips. But oftentimes, what happens is we're in a spot of persecution, of feeling down, and we just don't feel like it. What happens when I just don't feel like praising? I want to encourage you that's when you should praise the most. And you don't feel like it when you can barely get it off your lips. That's where those old hymns you sang as a kid, those catchy lyrics, where we just get to proclaim the goodness of our God. We get to just sing about it. It's your breath and my lungs. So I pour out my praise, pour out my praise, it's your breath, in my lungs. And so we praise him only. That's at least my cry when I'm in one of those spots. Lord, it's your breath in my lungs. I'm crying out to you right now. I can barely utter the words, and it feels like a sacrifice. Psalm 51 David was in a spot where he had royally messed up, he had committed adultery, he had gotten a woman pregnant. He'd covered up the sin with lies and then eventually murdered one of his soldiers. Actually, a guy that was one of his mighty men, one of his 300 best friends. He'd sent him off to die. Couldn't get any worse for David when all this got found out. And yet in Psalm 51, as he's contemplating this, he says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth Shall, shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. If there was some work in my hands, I would do it. But you don't delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. This is the spot we get to when we just have to cry out and say, Lord, mess this thing up. Lord, this thing has been messed up for me. I'm just going to cry out to you. I'm going to just praise your holy name. It's a sacrifice of praise. That's all God's really looking for out of us. So we continue in verse 16. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. What is the Lord looking for from us? Just to do good, to care for people, to love on people. As we realize how much he loves us, we have the opportunity to then turn around and appreciate others. How many of you that have kids, when you see your kid doing something good, or appreciating somebody, or saying thank thank you, I don't want to call it pride lest I be puffed up, but there's something that happens in a dad's heart. like, yeah. This is the Lord with us. He sees us doing something good, being thankful, giving somebody a hand. He goes, yeah. He is well pleased, we're told in verse... 16, verse 17, as we continue, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. And here he's talking about leadership in the church. And what he says is that you should be encouraged to submit to such authority. As I share that, I want to make it perfectly clear that scripture also makes it plain in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 3 that as you submit to authority, that authority should not be lorded over you. It shouldn't be held over you or to beat you. And if you've ever been in that spot with authority, I'm sorry. Truly I am but authority that is kind and gentle and caring and loving is easy to submit to. And so this is the encouragement here. And, and again, lest anybody think that I be puffed up, James chapter 3, verse 1 says, that let not many of you become teachers because you are due a stricter judgment. The reality is for me and leaders in any church is we have to stand before the Lord and answer for how we tended to the flock. And that's a scary thing Sometimes. One of the things that I take most joy in though is I get to sit here on Sundays and look out for an ever-growing number of people that are way better than me. (laughs) And so I'm moved by that. I'm encouraged by that. And I want you guys to be encouraged as well as you go out and you get the chance to be ministers and be priests to other people. Now, lest we stop there, you get a benediction. Verse 20, Now may the Lord, the God of peace, who brought up the Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so He encourages them with this benediction and where He puts the focus is on the power of the blood of the Lamb that there is power in the blood. That if you've got a broken, damaged relationship, if you've got death in your family, maybe you're sitting here, you're dead right now, please understand there is power in the blood of the Lamb. Power to resurrect, power to breathe new life into things that everybody else says can't possibly be done. There's nothing impossible for God. And so be encouraged by the power that exists in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 22 and I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. We've been 13 chapters through the book of Hebrews. Um, that equated to four months of study, uh, 15 messages, 640 minutes of teaching the Bible. And here he said, I have only shared with you a few words. <laughs> I find that hilarious. This guy was obviously a preacher. Often long, never winded, right? So he Here he said, I've only shared with you just a few things for you to consider. As I was kind of chuckling about that this week, this this is only a few words. What I was reminded of is what John wrote at the end of his gospel account. John chapter 21, verse 25. There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the book's as we consider the good things that Jesus has done in our life, the reason the writer to the Hebrews after 13 chapters can say this is only a few words is that as you consider the good that he has done, the work that he has done I don't know about you but I could go on for days about what Jesus has done in my life. That's why I always encourage you guys to journal because like me you probably forget things what has he done in your life? What is he The ways he's moved in your life, the ways he's cared for you, things that you cannot possibly explain. All the books in all the world couldn't contain the good things that Jesus has done in our lives. As we close out the book, know that our brother Timothy has been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all, amen. Matthew chapter five, verse three, in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus said is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are the ones that realize and understand that it's not all about them. They consider themselves and they feel like they understand that it is the Lord doing a tremendous work. It is not me by my flesh. Because for me and my flesh, uh, my motives are often mixed my fleshly desires get the thing all confused and, and often I want control. But when uh, when we are humble, we are poor in spirit, we realize it is all about him. What we'll realize and understand is that we must have, we must needs grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. The way that we are called to operate, the way that we are called to go uh, out and about and interact with people is with grace. So, Father, we thank you for the study of the book of Hebrews. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for emphasizing that you are better, better than anything we could ask, think, hope, or imagine. Lord, thank you that you continue to have grace in our lives. Thank you that when you could have given up, you didn't. Thank you that you're consuming fire, that chases after us, that that is reckless in the way that you come after us because you love us. Thank you for allowing yourself to be placed on the cross, on our account, for our behalf. Father, I just want to pray that you would continue to do a great work for all these people in their lives, in the lives of their children and in the lives of their children's children. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.